Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I spoke with Lisa Raitt, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, about the Admiral Norman case and the apology that Parliament delivered to Admiral Norman, but with the absence of two individuals who should have been there. Sam Cooper, global news reporter. You'll hear Sam talking about the money laundering in British Columbia. It's a huge story and billions and billions of dollars involved. Joe Warmington and Tom Quiggin on the explosives case from Richmond Hill. The father and son arrested. And our federal minister of public safety says it's just a local case. You'll hear what Joe Warmington and Tom Quiggin have to say. Joe's reporting and Tom's assessment. Peter Johnson is the author of Negotiating with Giants. We'll talk to Peter Johnson about trade wars and trade deals and negotiations all the way from Donald Trump and the president of China to you and somebody in your life. Don't miss this podcast. Admiral Norman. The Admiral in his statement to media after the charge against him was stayed said in part, I have an important story to tell that Canadians will want and need to hear. It is my intention in the coming days to tell that story, not to lay blame, but to ensure that we all learn from this experience. And I am waiting to hear the Admiral. I want to hear from him. There's only so much he can say without violating the law because he is a member, senior member of the military. But there are things I'm sure he can share with us. By the way, I went and uh, had a look at GoFundMe, the GoFundMe page for Admiral Norman, and it's at $441,047 out of the $500,000 that was sought. So what happens with the money? I don't know, because it was for his legal fees, which the government has now agreed that it's going to cover. But I'm sure the money will go to good use, and we'll we'll find out more as we go along. But what, what that shows, what that figure demonstrates is the connection Admiral Norman made with Canadians. There was just a sense, a real sense initially, that something bad was going on here, that a good man was being badly treated. So $441,047 raised on GoFundMe for Admiral Norman. MPs from all parties agreed to apologize to the Admiral after Lisa Raitt, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party, suggested this, this apology. But before the motion was passed, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Minister of Defense Harjit Sajjan, who has said that he approved the decision to suspend the Admiral, uh, the Prime Minister and the Defense Minister ducked out. They weren't there when it was read into the record. Uh, there's also, you've seen the story, heard the story, read the story, no doubt, that the Liberal-dominated Parliamentary Defense Committee refused to call Admiral Norman to testify before the committee, even though, as I said a minute ago, what he might have been able to speak to would have been severely restricted. Joining me on the program is the Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party, MP for Milton, in Ontario, Lisa Raitt. Ms. Raitt, thank you very much for the time. My pleasure, Roy. Thanks for covering this issue. Well, it's it's so significantly important because it affects each and every Canadian. When you have a prime minister engaging himself, involving himself in a case there where no charge has been laid and publicly stating that the person who's being investigated will inevitably see a courtroom, 
that is tremendously troubling. Yes. So it is. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get the apology. Uh, you didn't get pushback from any of the parties for this, did you? I did not, and I was surprised. Um, so I had spoken to the House, our House leader, Candace Bergen, on the weekend about how we could extract some kind of an apology. Would it be through an opposition day motion? Um, and she came up with this suggestion that we try for unanim- unanimous consent for the motion. And to be honest, I was surprised that I received it. I didn't think that the Liberals would allow it to go through. And when they did, I was delighted, um, first of all, but then saddened to see that the, the Prime Minister decided to scamper out as quickly as he could. So what happened? What exactly happened when uh, when the Prime Minister and the Minister of Defence departed? It was noted, and it's interesting because at first everybody on my side was just really happy that it passed. Nobody was looking to see whether or not somebody was present or absent, and in fact it was the media who reported it soon thereafter that the Prime Minister made sure he was not in the House when that motion came up, and uh, we asked if he would separately apologize, of course, and we haven't heard an apology from him. But I'm not surprised about that, Roy, because something else has come to light in the last couple of days. Um, The Prime Minister has sat down with the New York Times, and he gave them an exclusive interview about his troubles on SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould. And he said that there can't be an apology because he genuinely does not think that the disagreement, he was wrong and she was right. So it's not in the capacity of the prime minister to accept responsibility in issues in which he was clearly over the line. He doesn't see political interference in the justice system as being something he needs to apologize for, that he's not wrong. So he doesn't see that the day after the Globe and Mail ran its first story, and he stepped in front of the cameras and said the Globe and Mail story was false, he doesn't see the narrative from that moment forward that followed, and the fact that he actually apologized or corrected himself for what he'd said about Jody Wilson-Raybould, he doesn't see that as a problem for him. No, and I, I, I'll read you the quote that they have in this article. He, um, Mr. Tr- the Prime Minister says, I regret that it all happened, but there can't be an apology, there can't be a genuine apology, when I genuinely do not think that in that disagreement she was right and I was wrong. But, he, but, 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 but he said, he told Canadians, we have the clip somewhere, where he told Canadians, I, I, was, I was wrong to say what I said about her, and this was, this was before she testified before the parliamentary committee, so he actually contradicted himself. But there he is with the New York Times again. I read that particular article, by the way, yeah. and it made me think of the first uh, interview he gave the Times after becoming prime minister when he said uh, that, in his view, Canada is the first post-national state. I'm still trying to figure out what that is. <laughs> well, obviously, he likes talking to reporters who haven't been living the scandal because I know in Canada, for certain, everybody who has been watching this unfold in the last six months are very much aware of the facts around it and simply couldn't be persuaded to, to not push when he would say something I would submit as ridiculous as what he said to the New York Times. So now you were on the uh, Justice Committee and uh, you went through the five to four votes and here we were with the Defense Committee returning, again the Liberals with their majority, refusing to support calling witnesses before the committee the witnesses that were requested including the Prime Minister and when I think it was an NDP member who said well let's just call the Admiral then they, they still wouldn't agree to it It's stunning. I mean, to put it very, very baldly, Mark Norman gave 38 years of his life in service of Canada, 
and these MPs wouldn't give him 30 minutes to tell us what happened to him at a parliamentary committee. How is that? Thank you for your service. Well, you've read that uh, that article by uh, David Pugliosi of the uh, of the Ottawa Citizen, the first uh, the fight of your life. Yeah. And I'm going to be speaking with David tomorrow about what the admiral told the National Post. And I'm looking forward to that. Um, we, we, there's a lot more still to be discovered about this particular case. It's not going away. It's not going anywhere. And it's going to be part of the narrative for the October election. Now, let me uh, let me ask you this as well. What do you make of the Blacklock reporter story that the Trudeau liberals will publish an A-list of media organizations and websites under the multi-million dollar subsidy program? So the government is going to decide which media organizations and which websites have the greatest credibility. Yeah. Is one of them called Pravda? Because that's what it's sounding like, isn't it? Well, it's sounding like 1984. Yeah, it's it's very disappointing. What I what I do appreciate is that uh, people within the industry themselves are saying that this is ridiculous, and are concerned about what it does to independence and the and the concept of independence from government, and whether or not people are going to be doing um, editors, not journalists. I don't think writers or editors or publishers will do a bit of a gut check on whether how hard they want to go after the government if they're receiving a sizable a sizable grant that keeps them in operation. Uh, that, to me, is interfering once again. So it's the same thing as interfering with the judicial sector. Uh, you just don't interfere with prosecutorial independence. And now another part of the I guess part of the accountability of political actions in this country is the freedom of the press. And now they're not going to be seen as so much free. I think it's bad for the reputation of those on the list. And I just think it's bad in general for Canada for them to to try to, I don't know, indicate who they think is good and who they think isn't so good. An A-list is is uh, ridiculous, I think. Well, what worries me is that some teachers will take this into the classroom, and this is what kids will see as significant and as seen, uh, see that as, as correct. And, and that's, that's really disturbing. Ms. Ray, thank you very much for the time. And uh, by the way, I, I'm sorry that you were subjected to that idiot on, uh, <laughs> on Twitter. It was very insulting. I just wanted people to understand that um, sometimes you do have to call it out and, and, and show people for what they are. If it was, he, he didn't have the courage to do it on full display for everybody on Twitter. He decided he wanted to direct message me. So I thought I'd just cut out the middleman and let the rest of the world see. Good for you. Good for you. (laughs) Thanks for the time. Thanks, Thanks, Roy. Take care. Bye-bye. Lisa Raitt, Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. There is so much money that has been laundered criminally in British Columbia that it's quite staggering. Quite staggering. $7.5 $7.5 billion, $5 billion of it in the real estate market. And uh, Sam Cooper, Global News reporter, has written about this and done so extensively, reported on it, and done a tremendous job. We all know more about what's happening now. And this, is, this, this, this story has so many tentacles and has so many, so many roots that it follows. Um, and we have Sam joining us to talk about this and his most recent story was alleged heavyweight gangster could be poster child for BC's public inquiry into money laundering. Sam, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks, Roy. So there is going to be a public inquiry. Uh, how, how enthusiastic is the federal government about this, and, 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 and how, do you, how do you see this developing? 
Well, I'm not sure how enthusiastic the federal government is. I, I'm not even sure how enthusiastic the, the provincial government in British Columbia was to call this, but it, it's fair to say that the, the public wanted it. The polls were showing almost 80% for about the past year have been asking for this. And uh, with every story that uh, we have worked on digging deeper, I think the case was made stronger and stronger. Eventually, um, from my sources inside the government, they were saying, we know it's the right thing to do, and we know that we can't be politically connected to an inquiry because um, that, that would be problematic. They could be seen as uh, going after partisan uh, enemies. And, and the, the other thing is there, there could be people that are close to their side of the political fence that could be implicated, really. So mm -hmm. they had to step out. They did the right thing. The federal government has said, Yes, we're uh, we're on board with this, but I, uh, you know, I don't think they're tremendously enthusiastic. And just very briefly to say why uh, I'm seeing you, you mentioned tentacles and roots. I absolutely am seeing evidence of worrying contacts between high-level gangsters trying to reach out to politicians in Canada, and we already know they're very connected elsewhere. Yeah. Wow. When I think about the the inquiry and what you just said, it reminds me of something somebody said years ago. I'm happy to go, so stop pushing me. Um, so we have so many stories and twists, so many billions of dollars in play, and it's most fundamental. Where do we stand now as far as money laundering in British Columbia is concerned? The money, the provincial government, the federal response, where do we stand well, where we stand is the provincial government, to its credit, uh, stood up and said, we now believe, we have the evidence that the, uh, the previous government was turning a blind eye to dirty money coming in. They were, uh, in the premier, premier's words, intoxicated by the revenues pouring into casinos. That was proven through our stories, uh, how much was coming in how visually dirty it was when you're bringing in hockey bags uh, with um, 500000 to a million dollars. And they learned, uh, after our report, dug into a police intelligence study showing a tremendous amount of high-end money laundering. This recent report has used financial modeling to say it goes across the country and not just in 3 million to 30 million homes in Vancouver, but way down into the homes that uh, you and I can afford uh, under a million dollars. So what that says is it's, it's touching the middle class, it's touching uh, the people that can't afford homes. The high-end homes are costing more and more. That's making the low-end uh, homes cost more, money's being laundered in the low-end. Everyone that works for a living and pays taxes is getting pushed out of certain city centers. Whole blocks are being taken over, really, by drug houses, underground casinos, and prostitution houses. That's not an exaggeration. It's happening in Vancouver. That's that, where we stand. That is stunning. That is absolutely stunning. And it speaks to this country's laws being really providing a soft landing for these individuals who are involved in, in, uh, in money laundering. You wrote about an alleged heavyweight gangster, perhaps being the poster child, for British Columbia's public inquiry into money laundering. Who is Kwok Chung Tam, and what might his role have been and still be in the money laundering criminal investigation. What we're talking about here, in British Columbia especially, it's different uh, gangs in other areas of Canada and the world, but this is uh, mainland China, Macau, and Hong Kong-based gangs. It's a Macau casino money laundering model, 
And what our investigation into this individual showed was uh, he arrived in 1988 as a wealthy factory owner from China, uh, moved money across to Canada, and hit the, the round, uh, hit the ground running, according to the evidence, with violent crime right from the start. So we can probably unpack this a little bit more when we have time, but uh, I believe his case shows the blueprint of how the Macau money laundering model became the Vancouver model in Canada. I know that uh, Mr. Tam's lawyer sent a warning letter about associating him with organized crime, but if we look at this man, um, what might his role have been when he, in all of what's going on, and, uh, and you also write that he has alleged ties to BC, the B.C. casino industry and the province's multi-billion dollar real estate money laundering problem. That's right. We could speak for hours because it's a really complex and fascinating network how Asian organized crime works, which is very different from biker crime or, or mafia crime. They all have their models. And what I have been digging into is the, the Asian organized crime model of which a game called the Big Circle Boys is the pinnacle the the pinnacle operators so where we get the information on mr tam is about three thousand pages of uh, federal court records myself and a colleague came across because i knew about mr tam's case he's been fighting deportation for over 25 years as i said the the records show that he arrived uh in canada really under fraudulent means and in a model that is very well followed by, it seems, most big circle boys arrive, claim refugee status, and get into any number of uh, crime models right from the get-go. Violent robberies, loan sharking at casinos, and the loan sharking, that's just a really good one to unpack. What his case shows is that how they work, this is how the money laundering works. You approach gamblers in the casino who who want that loan they want to keep betting you give them money at 10 percent per week and they secure it with their their luxury vehicle if they're wealthy their home their furniture if they lose the bet and can't pay back they uh, you may you'll take their car their home their furniture if they can pay you back they pay you in checks so that is how this money gets into the banks and the gangsters can buy homes so what his case showed was within years, he had a number of homes, a car auto business that his product came from extorted vehicles. And really, uh, his case, again, we could talk for hours, but he was into shipping stolen cars from British Columbia to China and Hong Kong. So, uh, And he even, we found, which was shocking to me, it appears that he had or the Big Circle Boys may have been behind a casino application, and this happened to be the application that that took down the former premier, Glenn Clark, who, who has denied any wrongdoing. However, amidst a scandal of allegations of bribery, he stepped down. So what we see is that over decades, Mr. Tam apparently rises within the structure of the Big Circle Boys, makes outreach efforts to politicians, and uh, without giving away the plot, we're not done with them. I believe that uh, his case shows a number of links to law, the legal field, how money is laundered, and this is exactly what the the, uh, the commissioner will be looking into because we're talking about how law, legal trusts, bear trust uh, real estate deals are used to launder money. And uh, again, without giving it away, uh, we're going to learn more about that. Well, I can't wait. I mean, this is really this is really first class 
investigative reporting. This this defines what investigative reporting is about, what you are doing, what you and your colleagues are, are uncovering and doing. Uh, let's talk about the legal profession. There's call on lawyers to report to FinTrack if, they're, if they sense or if they know that something untoward is going on with financial transactions involving their clients. There's pushback from the legal community because they talk about the, uh, the uh, confidentiality between the client and the lawyer being sacrosanct. Talk to us about that, please. That's exactly right. You, you've nailed it on the head. We can unpack that. They, they used an argument. The lawyers in British Columbia launched an appeal saying, unlike bankers, casino operators, notaries, uh, jewelry store, you know, jewel sellers, we don't have to report to FinTrack suspicious transactions because that would breach a constitutional uh, principle that is lawyers and their clients need to have privileged communication. And that argument was, uh, was accepted by the Supreme Court of Canada. The lawyers said, we, you know, we have ethics. We will report anything suspicious within our own law society. And if we don't, uh, then we'll be disciplined. However, that argument never made sense to me because, of course, the criminal justice system does need that uh, we couldn't put people on trial if they couldn't tell their their story to their lawyer. But what this has done is given lawyers, you know, financial lawyers, just a blanket, a corporate veil under which they can allow suspicious transactions. And we're not talking about all lawyers. There are many ethical lawyers out there. However, what the recent German report said, too many unethical ones. And uh, I'm, I have evidence. I'm gonna cut, we're working on evidence that I believe will shock people about some lawyers that knew or should have known better that they were laundering money for gangsters. Oh. Well, you are doing, as I said before, just remarkable, remarkable work. And let me come back, Sam, to something that you said at the beginning of our conversation. You detailed what the sidebar, and it's almost unfair to call them sidebars, but the sidebar effects are of this money laundering from $7.4 billion. And just to remind people, a billion dollars is a thousand times a million dollars. That's what one billion is. Uh, And this is not a benign money crime that's taking place. There are actual physical manifestations. People are dying. People are dying. And the way I look at this, I'm from Ontario. I started my journalism career about 14 years ago in the city of Vancouver. And I just couldn't get my head around the downtown east side, the poorest postal code in Canada. It was just shocking the amount of uh, heroin. With the, everyone has seen the images probably that watches television news. You see people literally lying in alleys with needles in their arms, and people are just dying in droves. I, I have vivid images of walking through a park where you had hundreds of people there live, lying basically undressed, and it was just this was third world conditions. What, what I learned over the years was the heroin was pouring in from the Golden Triangle. And to get back to Mr. Tam, uh, our document said the Big Circle Boys are such a powerful cartel, they control the price of heroin in North America. Get your head around that. This gang controls the price of heroin. And what have they done over the past 10 years? They've increased their profits by, con- by bringing fentanyl into Canada, which makes the heroin go farther. So there, when we look at the opioid, the fentanyl overdose crisis, that thousands dying per year in Canada, 
who's responsible the big circle boys where are they strongest british columbia so that's what it is the the, the deaths family suffering we can point the finger and i believe this inquiry i hope it, it gets to the bottom and if there are politicians connected um there's got to be strict severe consequences well this uh, this public inquiry has to uh, has to get to the bottom of it the entire story and i know that you will be holding them accountable because you know what what the story is and what's what's been going on sam i um at scooper cooper is your twitter handle at scooper cooper i couldn't think of a better twitter handle and uh you're a hell of a reporter sir thanks Roy. i always enjoy talking with you about these things thank you sam all the best to you right bye bye-bye sam cooper from global news he truly truly is outstanding and when when you when you when you get to the um the opioid crisis you have people dying in significant numbers that's two words in significant numbers who are using the uh, illegal fentanyl that is brought over the doctored fentanyl that's brought over from china and and what happens then by extension because there's such concern about the illegal stuff that's killing people who are drug addicts What's happening now is that it's been happening for a number of years is that people who are sick, people who are ill, people who have physical structural problems in their bodies that are causing them massive pain, chronic pain, and who've been treated by prescription opioids to just get some quality of life, they're the people who are suffering along with the, uh, the, the folks who are the drug addicts because it is now almost impossible for pain patients to receive the medication that they require to keep their lives going. And I, hear, I, I receive the emails and get the phone calls on a regular basis. Heartbreaking email yesterday. Heartbreaking email yesterday. So this, this, uh, this, this story, this what's going on in BC, has tremendous legs. And it's not just British Columbia. It's taking place in other parts of the country as well, like the province of Ontario. Richmond Hill, Ontario, father and son, have been arrested over an explosive device, materials uh, found in their home. Police investigated the home after receiving information about a uh, suspect being investigated by U.S. Customs and Border Protection and the Canada Border Services Agency. The father and son are charged with possession of an explosive device. They are Mehar Mohammed Yassi, he was 18, and his father Reza Mohammed Yassi. The federal public safety minister, Ralph Goodell, says the investigation is not related to national security. No idea where the minister gets that idea. Uh, even though, and keep this in mind, media reports in Toronto were suggesting the sun was the on the cusp of radical, radicalization. Uh, joining me on the program are Joe Warmington, Toronto Sun investigative reporter and columnist who's been writing on this. Hey, Joe. Hey, Roy. And Tom Quiggin, uh, the Quiggin Report podcast dealing with free speech and national security. Tom Quiggin is a court-qualified expert on terrorism 
intelligence expert who's worked with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, the Bank of Canada, the UN Protection Force in Yugoslavia, the Privy Council Office in Ottawa. And he testified at the Air India Inquiry. His book is Submission, the Danger of Political Islam to Canada. Tom, thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for inviting me to the uh, Roy Green Show. So, Joe, let's, uh, for people who may have picked up bits and pieces of this story across yeah. the country, can you just give us the background of what, in fact, happened and what's going on? Well, there's a lot to it. I mean, what is the story? Is the story the cover-up of this, or is the story that it happened? I mean, my God, this is Richmond Hill, of all places, which people across the country may not realize, but it's a suburban city on pretty well just off of Young Street up north of the, of the city of Toronto before Newmarket. Idyllic place, uh, you know, one of the most beautiful places to live in Canada. And we're talking about a father and son being charged with explosives. They found chemicals, detonation devices in the house, and of course there was the incident at the border where the 18-year-old son tried to get across that neither Niagara Falls or Buffalo, we're not sure where, earlier this month. As if, we're talking about it, Roy, as if this is sort of normal, because what's become in this country, you know, you're not allowed to say this and you can't say that. This happened here. And we just don't know what would happen if the border had not, border officer had not stopped the kid from going across. So what happened, Joe, what happened, what happened to the border when the 18-year-old tried to get over into the United States? What took place? What happened was that the border officer, the Customs and Protection border officer, you know, had red flags, he saw red flags, and he flagged him and put him in for secondary, and they started looking at his phone and then, you know, his vehicle, and they were nervous about it. And that's how York Regional Police were brought into it. York Regional Police said, holy jumping, got a search warrant and went into this house on Larrett Lane, which is another idyllic kind of street. And lo and behold, they find different kinds of chemicals there. A lot of this is covered under a publication ban, but that part's been reported. And, and other things, so, you, you know, uh, this is not uh, some phony thing, and the fact that Ralph Goodell, the minister, blew it off as he did with the Danforth case, which I was on your show about, and Tom knows all about, and we still don't know all the details there, but we've brought a lot of it out between Tom, Roy, and myself, and others, and that's what we're trying to do with this one, because they're not telling us the truth. I think that uh, in the case of uh, Minister Goodell, he owes uh, the city of Toronto, the GTA, and other people around Ontario and Canada an apology for that mistruth, because this was at the border, we've showed that, and we know that he was going to cross over into the state to meet somebody. This is not a local policing matter, as he described it. So we get the we have the situation at the border involving both the United States and Canadian Customs Services. the uh, The police get a warrant. They execute the search. They make arrests. They find explosive materials or chemicals. Uh, and the public safety minister, let me switch to, to Tom Quiggin here. The, the public safety minister, Mr. Ralph Goodale, Tom essentially says, move along, nothing to be seen here. It's a local matter. Your thoughts? Yeah, Roy, this, I was actually stunned again by the statements by the public safety minister, Mr. Goodale. First off, clearly it's not a local matter. U.S. Customs and Borders is involved. That defines it's international. And by the way, they would have had to report that through a federal chain of command, i.e. to federal authorities in Canada. So by definition, it's both federal and international. The second thing is, 
This case actually defines national security interests. A lot of folks tend to forget it, but the United States and Iran are almost involved in a shooting war right now. In fact, four tankers have been attacked in the Straits of Hormuz. They've been hit by what's probably underwater drones carrying explosives. So the situation is incredibly tense. So for Iranian-born individuals to be involved in a cross-border incident where explosives are involved, this defines national security. It's a massive threat to Canada should the Americans choose to respond. The other thing is there's a pattern of this going on. There was the bomb attack in the city of Mississauga in May 2018, and we were told nothing to see, move along. There was the Danforth attacks in 2018. Again, we're told nothing to see, move along. On the 12th of August 2018, there was a vehicle attack on Parliament Hill at a security checkpoint. People were hit by a car, but we were told literally, quote, at no time was there a threat to public safety. And I would think well, getting run down by a car is actually, you know, a threat to public safety, especially on Parliament Hill, especially at a checkpoint. Then, as Joe mentions, the other problem in all this, the thing that bothers me maybe the most beyond the government willfully lying to us in a pattern is it's the normalization of violence. In other words, the public safety minister is telling us, oh, well, you know, people with explosives in their house, you know, no big deal, just move along. Happens all the time. And, you know, unfortunately, to a certain degree, it is becoming a common pattern here in Canada. But I don't think it's something we should normalize or internalize. In fact, we should be raging against the machine, if anything. This is a problem, and we need to say so. Uh, Joe, when when we hear the words that the son, the 18-year-old, who the one who was stopped at the border, was on, quote, the cusp of radicalization, end quote, that raises, to me anyway, some very significant red flags. But so to the to federal public safety minister, it's... You know, I mean, you're on the cusp when you're going across the border, there's chemicals and detonation devices, and you're, you and your dad are in... And the who's gal for the week, and that's that's the cusp. I'd hate to see what full radicalization looks like. You know, uh, it's another one of these kind of you know buzzword spins that we're all supposed to nod our heads, and it works. And I'll tell you, you know, they, I think the media here in Toronto has done a pretty good job on it, but it, there's no interest in Washington media. And I've talked to a couple of friends down there. I know Tom's probably done that too, and there's no national coverage of it. I want to add one more, Roy, if you don't mind, uh, to Tom's list about. Two or three clicks from this incident, there was another one last year. Do you remember that one where the guy in the bank went in? And I, I reported it. I got it from sources that he was yelling about Donald Trump. And, and, and the police ended up shooting him. He had a, you know, a vest around his, you know, like a explosion kind of vest. And I, we never did really hear the bottom of it because most of these things go, you know, where secrets go to die, as you know. But that's another incident. And that was only... You know, very, very close to it. And the case of Manassian, who was the guy that did the van attack, he lived up in that area as well. So, you know, we're normalizing it. We're used to it. Uh, don't look here. Don't even write about it. Uh, you know, don't follow it up. Pretty soon the, the media here will get bored with this. So now that these guys are on bail, and we'll move on to the, to the next thing. Yeah, well, the component parts of this story have me very, very interested. Obviously, you, Joe, you're writing about it, and you're providing the information so the that require. On, and, on, on us today, the three of us on Twitter, I mean, people are listening right now because we're talking about it because they're not being fooled by Justice Trudeau, the Prime Minister, and the Public Safety Minister anymore. And this Danforth business, by the way, and I want them to understand it, is that I know a lot, and I know Tom knows a lot, and we've reported what we can, but you know, if they don't start bringing it out pretty soon... They're going to have to put us in jail because we're going to bring out the truth on this thing. And that includes trips to Pakistan, 
and different things that, that we're on in training and different things. It's all going to come out. Well, uh, Mr. Goodell certainly has to reevaluate, or at least evaluate, he's go, his position. Boy, he's got to go. Look at it. If I said to you anything less, you know, if I lied to you about anything, you'd never speak to me again. I would never be on your show again. This guy, you know, I'll, I'll issue the challenge right now to Mr. Goodell. Come on with Roy right now and let Roy Green question you about this. And you back up this idea that it's a local policing matter. Yeah. And stop insulting the Canadian public. You know, if this bomb had have gone off and killed people, innocent children, or maybe a synagogue nearby, or God knows what, then what? Would this guy be up on charges? You know, we got to start taking this stuff seriously. And, you know, thank God for you and for Tom. You know, I sit here and I look at this. I covered the Boston bombing. I covered 9-11. You know, I was over in the streets of Hermos. I've been to Afghanistan. I'm sick and tired of us lying to the public. Look, nobody considers these people doing this to be anything but terrorists. And they're not part of the Canadian fabric. It's not being racist. Let's root them out and let's tell the truth and let's stop doing it. These guys got bail. We've got a pregnant woman in jail that didn't get bail who was part of a robbery or whatever. And I'm not saying she should have got bail, but it's interesting that the priority leaving a pregnant woman in, and these two guys who were, you know, doing, as, as Tom says, at a time with the RAND, the heat of the RAND situation, uh, you know, they're fooling around with all that, and they're out enjoying the Victoria Day weekend, and they're going to be able to go to the fireworks show. So many. Look, Joe, questions need answers, and the guy who said it's a local matter is the guy who has to supply the answers. Reading a story by David Pugliese in the Ottawa Citizen, the Canadian Forces Afghan Memorial, dedicated uh, on the 13th of May, did not feature anyone in attendance. In attendance, Nobody was there other than senior military members. There was nothing released to the public, no information released to the public, and no family of the fallen were informed or invited. There's a story here. And uh, Joe Warmington, I was thinking, when I first wrote this, read the story, Joe, I was thinking about how you and your involvement with the, high ro- he- I'm sorry, the Highway of Heroes uh, efforts, where so many Canadians turned out to, to witness the repatriation of the bodies of Canadians who had died in Afghanistan. There was a, such a tremendous public outpouring of grief and gratitude. And here we are. There's this dedication of the Afghan memorial. It's done quietly with no news release, and neither the families nor friends of the fallen are even informed. What's your thinking? Well, it's unprecedented, and I think you've hit on something as well. The fact is that they would have had thousands of people there had they opened it up, and I guess they didn't want that because people would have been there in droves. And I learned that with the Highway of Heroes. You know, myself and and many others, Pete Fisher and Christy Blatchford and people like that were out there a lot. And it was very organic. We talked about it early. We noticed people going on the bridges before we kind of came up with the name and all of that. And you know what? People were out there, and it was, you know, it wasn't supposed to be a commercial thing. It was always people that cared, and they just wanted to say thank you. They would have been at this thing. I can't wait to see what Tom has to say about it. He's, you know, more connected in Ottawa than I am. But I'll tell you something. This, just like the interpreter situation, and we've talked a lot, Roy, about that on this show. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's another one of these sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, but it's like a dark chapter in Canadian history to do this to the, uh, you know, the fallen, the wounded, the families, and all the people that went there uh, on our behalf. Tom, what are your thoughts? 
Uh, yeah, pretty much follow on with Joe, and I would add a couple of things here. One, I mean, forget the fact it's massively disrespectful to the Canadian forces, massively disrespectful to the families who lost uh, brothers, sons, daughters, whatever, over there. But it's also, again, it's a part of a pattern. If it doesn't suit the government's narrative, the event doesn't happen. So remember, the Holocaust Memorial was opened in Ottawa, and somehow it managed to forget the, the Jews. It didn't mention the fact that the Jews were involved in the Holocaust, which is just absolutely stunning. And again, I think, you know, remember what got us in Afghanistan was the Al-Qaeda attacks of 9-11. It's the Taliban. It's Islamicraticalization that hasn't involved in Afghanistan. That's why we were there. And I think, again, talking about that doesn't suit the current narrative. And the current narrative coming from Liberal leader Trudeau, coming from Mr. Goodale, coming from uh, Foreign Minister Freeland, is that white supremacy and neo-Nazis are the real threat. That's what we need to focus on. And again, I find this fascinating. I find this whole narrative they're trying to spin fascinating because it's a big, giant, bright, shining lie. Why would I say that? Go to the public ministry website. Look at the listed terrorist groups that the public safety minister has determined are a threat to Canada, Canadian, or Canadian interests. There are 55 terrorist groups listed. 40 of those 55 are Islamist in nature. The word white, white supremacy, Nazi or neo-Nazi does not appear anywhere in any of the terrorist groups listed. So the narrative put to us by Mr. Trudeau, by Ms. Freeland, by Mr. Goodale, that white supremacy and neo-Nazis and nativists and incels, those are the real threat. It's just wrong. And I think the problem with the Afghan memorial was it didn't suit the narrative. I'm out of of time. Guys, thank you very much. uh, This whole story has to be explored. We have to have answers. And, And it's absolutely shameful that we would have the Canadian Forces Afghan memorial dedicated in secrecy on the 13th of May, and it was only later that we were supposed to find out by way of Twitter and Facebook, and none of the family members of the fallen were even informed. Tom Quiggin, Joe Warmington, thank you guys. Appreciate the time. Cheers, Roy. There's quite a battle going on between China and the United States. The U.S. likely has the upper hand in the economic battle because it's a bigger economy. But then there's Canada and the United States, where the uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum have been dropped. That's as long as we don't have Chinese steel being dumped into North America, according to the deal they've put together. Mexico, of course, involved as well. And uh, there's Canada's issues with uh, China since this country, the RCMP, arrested on a U.S. warrant the chief financial officer of Huawei. And what's resulted from that, you well know. The canola banned by uh, by China, we've spoken with Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan about that, Saskatchewan being the main exporter of canola in this country. And yeah, it touches each and every one of us. Each and every one of us is financially impacted when this sort of thing happens. And then the Chinese have decided to now formally charge two Canadians they just grabbed because of their grumpiness over the arrest of the Huawei CFO, and now they've charged them officially with spying. I don't know what the possible consequences of that are, but I do know they have the death penalty in China, and they usually carry it out very quickly, not suggesting that's going to happen to these two individuals. But there are two other Canadians who, in fact, have been sentenced to death for supposedly or allegedly or chargedly 
moving methamphetamine and other drugs through China. That's the charge. And I suspect the Chinese are not going to back off. They will continue. Peter D. Johnston is the author of Negotiating with Giants. And you can uh, get it online at uh, or follow it online. Choose it online. Buy it online at Amazon or negotiatingwithgiants.com. That's one of your uh, options. There's also a, a book, another book that Peter wrote, a new one, weaponsofpeace.ca, Weapons of Peace. Or .com, .com. Peter uh, Johnston is, um, well, he worked with founders of the Harvard Negotiation Project. He's a graduate of the Harvard School of Business. I'm intimidated reading this. Former journalist and investment banker and uh, negotiating with giants was formally recognized by the United States government for its positive impact. I'm reassured, though, because Peter Johnston is one of us. He's Canadian. How are you, Peter? I am indeed Canadian, and uh, thank you for having me on, Roy. Well, it's great to have you on the show. So I'm reading about I haven't read your book yet, but I am going to read it, but I've read a lot about it. And so I love this intro. How do you negotiate with Walmart, with America's president over going to war, a pay raise from an intimidating boss, more money for a struggling startup, sweeping social change, a Super Bowl victory for a team of losers, the return of stolen treasure... Uh, lost lost rights or a canceled credit card, and your survival if you're taken hostage by an armed killer. All sorts of op- all sorts of uh, I shouldn't say opportunities. All sorts of situations where we find ourselves negotiating our way out of or into something, and if we don't have the skills, the chances of success are significantly diminished. Do I have that right? That's right. And Negotiating with Giants was my first book, as you said. My second book, which is just out now and across the U.S. and hasn't been formally launched in Canada, but that's available here, Weapons of Peace, uh, actually takes the lessons from Negotiating with Giants and puts them into a novel that will be uh, exciting to read and also is the first of its kind to relay insights about negotiation, the art and science of negotiation, uh, uh, through fiction uh, so that people can use those lessons in their lives and to better understand dealings like the ones you mentioned between the U.S., China, uh, Canada right now, globally, so that we can judge our leaders more effectively on whether they're negotiating well on our behalf. Boy, that's really important, because we don't really know the job they're doing. We hear, we hear the quotes. We just heard the soundbite from Trudeau. And again, it's clear it's not something he's saying. It's something somebody wrote for him. Because I can always tell by the inflections whether people are actually speaking words that they're just content. What's the word we're looking for here? The words that just come to them extemporaneously. That's the word I was looking for. Or whether they've memorized something somebody wrote for them. It doesn't matter whether it's Trudeau or anybody else. But, but let me ask you that's a couple. That's exactly right. And by the way, you know, President Trump, uh, we noticed that as well. When he's take, reading uh, from notes, teleprompter, he's his range is much more limited on the highs and lows of his voice Interesting. when he's talking off the cuff. Interesting. So let me ask you about these international situations and your views on, on what happened and what may not have happened and what could have happened, maybe what should have happened and what may still happen. You got a whole range there, Peter. Canada and the United States have now an agreement on eliminating tariffs on aluminum and steel and uh, cools the trade war. Mexico's situation with the United States also has to be cooled. Now, Canada and the U.S. details should be finalized this weekend, but there's still the specter of foreign steel being dumped into North America, which could affect this deal. How do you assess 
the trade situation between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, which for many years was under the auspices of NAFTA until Donald Trump said, no mas. What, what do you think happened? Who wins? The, how did the negotiations take place? Who won here? I, I think it, complex uh, issues that can be boiled down to simple terms. Uh, Trump uh, used his mandate, used his base, uh, political clout to try to get more out of the deal with Canada and Mexico that he's always uh, gone on about and that he campaigned on. And uh, for the most part, uh, while intimidating Canada, and it's difficult to deal with President Trump, uh, as we know, because he's volatile and unpredictable. And you don't know if he truly understands the complexities of these trade dealings well enough uh, that he won't get himself in trouble that's irreversible. And uh, for that reason, I think for all the testing that he did and the relabeling of the deal uh, with Mexico and Canada, you know, it, it's not that different than what it was. And I would say to Canadians, uh, you were in good hands with Christia Freeland, who uh, everything I saw from her in heading up those negotiations was based on best practice. Did Canada blink? I've been asked. I don't think Canada blinked. I think Canada overall looked at its overall interest effectively and decided, you know what, there's risk reward here and uh, we can keep most of what we've got now uh, and say yes, or we can put everything we have now at risk with in dealing with somebody who doesn't necessarily understand the nuances of just how bad this could be if this turns into a trade war. And that takes us to the China front, of yeah. course. Okay, so now let me ask you this one. I have a couple more. We'll take a break in a second, but we'll continue. In a Canada-U.S. trade negotiation, who has the upper hand? It may seem like a superfluous question, but it's not as easy as saying the United States is massively bigger than Canada, is it? No, there's huge mutual dependence uh, between these two parties, as there is with the U.S.-China, Canada-China. So, you know, there aren't... Framing it as winning and losing is just the wrong framing from a negotiation perspective. And I know this is... But that's what we do. Tested. That's what yeah. we do, right? Yeah, we talk... We talk and Trump, uh, it's core to his personality type to talk about winning and losing. And, and it does work against U.S. interests because with China or with Canada, uh, there are far more areas where we have common interests that we can work on, where we should be collaborating and not labeling one another as enemies, because that's just not the reality. So if we label somebody as an enemy, as in the case of the U.S. with China right now, in terms of the language at the political level, guess what? They're going to act like an enemy. And that happened with the axis of evil that was labeled under uh, George W. in his 2002 address, State of the Union, where he labeled the uh, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea as uh, that axis of evil. And of course, it's very reasonable for those countries to then say, wait a minute, if we're the enemy, we better protect ourselves. And that's led to a lot of what we've seen over the last couple of decades. We have to think about collaborating and competing, cooperation, as some people call it. It goes on all the time in business and with most nations that we deal with. And it can be handled effectively. We don't want to go to one extreme or the other, or we're all at risk. Cooperation. That's right. I love it. That's such a great term. Never heard it before, but I'll be using it from now on. 
Um, well, it exists with even in families, if you think about it, Roy. Yeah. You know, many times siblings, uh, there's, uh, there's cooperation on a lot of fronts and love and respect. Uh, and then there's competition in other areas. Yeah. And we balance it within families, and it has to be balanced and thought of that way uh, to be most effective internationally. And that's what I espouse when I'm advising companies and governments around the world. Peter, on this uh, issue of Trump versus Xi, the president of China. You have two alphas here and two massive economies. Does this become a situation which is as much personal as it is an objective battle over trade and tariffs? If you were if you were advising Trump or Xi or if you're analyzing them or providing strategies, well, how would you handle this? That is... Uh a complex question as well. Uh, I would start with the mindset which we discussed uh, in the previous segment, which is uh, recognize that in this world uh, with challenges ahead militarily, economically, politically, climate change, uh, we need China as an ally. So, And the U.S. is needed as an ally by China. So uh, we're all in this together. That's the reality. That's not naive thinking if we're going to be effective internationally. And so in managing this case, my best advice uh, would be, first off, let's recognize that this is a manufactured crisis in trade. They're really, this is coming from uh, President Trump and his base and what he campaigned on. But in truth, uh, I think most would agree uh, the imbalance with China's trade uh, in goods with the U.S., is more of an economic structural issue that the U.S. has had for probably 50 years now, where its productive capacity is not keeping up with its consumption, and therefore it has to import the difference, wherever that comes from. As you'd recall, Roy, decades ago, that came from Japan very heavily. Made in Japan was much more common then than made in China. And it's part of it was part of the evolution of Japan at that point. So best advice is think big picture. Uh, that trade deficit that the president's worried about is structural, and uh, it is also one that is exaggerated because it doesn't include services. That would bring that down instead of four times uh, the trade deficit. It would be three times. And then on top of that, you have the fact that uh, it, right now South Korea exports to China circuit boards, for example. Those circuit boards go into electronics that get imported to the U.S., and South Korea's input is counted as coming from China. So that's an exaggeration as well. So this is really something that comes back to the political, not the economic, in my estimation. Okay, we have about three minutes left, so I'll set aside the other international questions I, I was going to ask you and, and take this a little more make this a little more personal and, and, and set the arena in ways that we can all perhaps understand, better understand. Um, some of the examples that I've read where you've been involved, and you're the managing director of NAI, a consulting firm uh, in, uh, founded in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you were involved in a case where you helped a renowned gallery negotiate the return of stolen artwork how do you do that? What what are some of the what are some of the negotiating rules we should all carry with us? That's a, 
a good question. The main rules, especially when we're dealing with much more powerful players on the other side, uh, it, first off, stay away from the negotiation table as long as possible, mm-hmm. which may sound counterintuitive to some. Don't negotiate uh, when you have to negotiate, but you can negotiate effectively away from the table, and that answers the art gallery question. Uh, it answers Canada dealing with China, uh, and it uh, even dealing with your own boss. And what that means is building coalitions away from the table. Uh, it's doing your research. It's getting helpers who can help you out in giving you research you don't have access to, and some of that research deals with understanding your giant better, what's really driving them. In China's case, to come back to China as an example, uh, China's, I think the nut that has to be cracked here is it's all about intellectual property, and that's what irked the U.S., and that's what irked China, and that's why they're not talking right now. This is, again, something where the Chinese cannot just turn around and give the U.S. intellectual property protection because they would have to change all of their laws overnight and the policing of how intellectual property is handled, and therefore they're just not going to allow a foreign power to be perceived to have that much power over them, or guess what? President Xi's stay in power is not the lifetime that he plans right now. It could well be shorter. And so the U.S. has to understand those interests and work behind the scenes, away from the table, to try to accommodate those legitimate interests uh, appropriately. As do we in our relations and our current uh, discord with with the Chinese in this country. We only have a few seconds, Peter. Uh, again, give us the uh, example of how your, your book, uh, the most recent one, Weapons of Peace, how we can put that to use. Well, Weapons of Peace is going to talk about all of these issues, whether you're especially with giants. It's uh, dealing, it's a young nurse, and it's inspired by two true stories in World War II, who has to negotiate the unthinkable, keeping an atomic weapon away from the Nazis. And uh, Weapons of Peace is, uh, can be found, uh, you just Google my name, Peter D. Johnston, and Weapons of Peace. It's an historical thriller, uh, like a Grisham uh, book that deals with the law. This is dealing with negotiation. And it's a chance for all Canadians to better understand how to negotiate effectively internationally and in their own lives. Peter, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. My pleasure, Roy. Thanks for having me. Peter Johnston, Negotiations with Giants and Weapons of Peace. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.